Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Before we get into tachydysrhythmias with Amamatsu and Paul Dorian, I've got some exciting news. Uh, if you listen to the June main episode podcast on EM cases on effective learning strategies for EM, you'll know that the best way to retain knowledge after you've listened to a podcast or read the show notes or watched a rapid review video is to actively test yourself. Yeah, spaced multimodal repetition, that's, you know, listening to a podcast and later on reading the show notes and then reviewing the Just for Nuggets emails, that kind of thing. That increases your chances of the knowledge sticking, but the ultimate in learning EM really is testing yourself. Enter the EM Cases Quiz Vault. So in just a few short months, we'll have dozens of handcrafted quizzes, all based on the main episode podcast and show notes, available on the EM Cases website for free for you to hone your EM knowledge, ace your exams, and fulfill any CME requirements you might have. So this is how it works. You'll be able to choose quizzes by either episode or specialty, like pediatrics, trauma, cardiology, airway, whatever honks your horn, and you'll get real-time feedback on how you're doing in that particular subject, and maybe even a summary of your scores on the quizzes compared to other people taking the quizzes. Now, the Quiz Vault will be dead simple to use on your laptop, tablet, or on your phone. I've had many residents tell me they listen to pretty much all the EM Cases podcasts to prepare for their exams, but now you can ensure that you'll remember all the key points with the Quiz Vault. There are other EM quiz banks out there, but they cost big bucks. This costs a total of zero. So in the spirit of FOMED, it's totally free. And for those of you who practice emergency medicine in Ontario who haven't had formal training in EM, the College of Physicians and Surgeons have recently mandated that you need to come up with a so-called learning plan with your ED chief. Now, the college isn't providing a learning plan for you, so what we've done with the Quiz Vault is have one in place for you. That's an easy learning plan. And once we're up and running, we're hoping to provide CME points for completing the quizzes as well. So that's the EM Cases Quiz Vault coming soon to the EM Cases website. On another note, there are only eight tickets left for Podcast Camp, the course about MedEd podcast production this coming October in Toronto. So I'm going to be running the course as the course director. We'll also have guest faculty Hans Rosenberg from MRAP. This will be hands-on and small group. So in two days, you'll learn everything you need to know about producing kick-ass med-ed podcasts from gear selection to educational principles, editing, sound design, dissemination, the whole shebang. So if you know anyone who wants to start a podcast at their university or someone who's been podcasting but wants to up their game, please let them know about Podcast Camp and point them to the URL podcastcamp.org. Now on to tachydysrhythmias with Dr. Paul Dorian and Dr. Amal Matsu. Today, we delve into the world of the fearsome tachydysrhythmia, yet another condition in medicine that spans the spectrum of illness severity from completely benign to cardiac arrest, from premature atrial contractions to pulseless VF. Like much of cardiology, the importance of understanding the pathophys cannot be overstated. So who better to have as guests than Dr. Paul Dorian, cardiology department director and staff electrophysiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, who you may remember from our Journal Jam podcast on the ALPS trial, as well as Dr. Amal Matu, whose title most closely resembles 
emergentologist, master educator, and ECG expert. So let's dive in. A 55-year-old woman with a history of dilated cardiomyopathy and hypertension on an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker was out shopping when she suddenly became short of breath. She denies chest pain, palpitations, dizziness, cough, fever. Rest of the review of systems is negative. On exam, she appears well and in no distress. However, you see something that might look like VTAC on her monitor, but you're not exactly sure. So, Paul, what are your first thoughts about this case? We need to know that many patients, but not all, who present with a sustained tachyarrhythmia will not have palpitations or an awareness of a rapid heartbeat as their primary symptom, although that is the most common. And we should not necessarily be dissuaded from the severity of the situation by the fact that she doesn't have palpitations. Very importantly, somebody with LV dysfunction who has a tachyarrhythmia and normal blood pressure may be in incipient shock. We have no way of knowing what this patient's cardiac output is. And we need to be careful because if she indeed has ventricular tachycardia, as is a priori likely, but given the history, she may well have a very low cardiac output despite the fact that her blood pressure appears normal and she appears to be minimally symptomatic. Dr. Matu? <laughs> well, ditto. I, I think in this patient, our initial assumption based on what you said is that we're dealing with ventricular tachycardia. It would certainly be nice to get a full rhythm strip and a 12 lead. And then with our initial assessment, we're going to try to figure out whether she is stable or unstable. If she's stable, then we're likely going to be thinking about medications. If she's unstable, then the exact diagnosis probably doesn't matter as much because we're probably going to be heading towards using electricity with her. With two exceptions, there's, of course, two tachycardias that we never want to shock. And those would be sinus tachycardia and MAT. So just a, a reminder to those folks out there that you do want to at least take a, a good look at the rhythm strip and 12 lead if you have it and make sure that you're not dealing with either of those before you shock someone because all you're going to do is have a very unhappy patient. All right. Well, we're going to get into all the details of this stuff. That's a, a great start. First, we need to have sort of a general approach to tachydysrhythmias. So Dr. Matu, let's go with the basics and we can build on it from there. What's your general approach when you see someone's heart rate going fast? Well, if there's time to try to figure out what the diagnosis is, I think there's three major questions that you want to ask. First of all, is it regular or irregular? And the second question is, is it narrow or wide? And then the third question is, what is the atrium doing? Do you see P waves? And if you do see P waves, how are they related to the QRS complexes? Are there two P waves for every one QRS and, and so on? So those three questions will probably nail your diagnosis of the tachydysrhythmia in, I'm guessing, probably about 90% of cases. Of course, that's if the patient is stable. If the patient's unstable, again, it probably doesn't matter because you're heading right towards treatment to start with. All right. So that's the classic medical school teaching. Perfect. Let's talk about wide complex tachycardia. So Dr. Matu, what are the wide complex tachycardias that we have to know? So we see an ECG that's wide complex. What's kind of the algorithm in your head that you go through to try and distinguish which sure. kind of wide complex so tachycardia? I have a, a very simple mind. And so I like keeping things as simple as possible. And I assume we're talking about regular wide complex tachycardia. So if, if we're talking about regular wide complex tachycardia, my number one thought is VTAC. 
Number two is VTAC. Number three, four, five is VTAC. Maybe sinus tack with aberrant conduction gets thrown in there also. And then you also have to consider hyperkalemia and sodium channel blocker toxicity from overdoses or certain medications. Of course, the big distinction that people always want to make is SVT with bundle branch block pattern versus ventricular tachycardia. And I know that there have been a lot of rules published or guidelines or pathways published over the years which have tried to reliably distinguish between VTAC versus SVT with a bundle. And I don't think I've ever seen any of them better than 90% accurate, which essentially means you might end up killing 10% of your patients if you try to use those rules. So I'm not a big fan in the emergency department in a hectic environment of trying to, to sort through those rules like you had a 12 lead. I've seen far too many mistakes made. And so my teaching is always just assume it's VTAC. Unless you clearly see PQRS, 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 and it's sinus TAC. I try to teach all of our residents and my own practice is just assume it's ventricular tachycardia, trade it for VTAC. The one exception, again, would be if the clinical scenario is suggestive of hyperkalemia or sodium channel blocker toxicity. I learned from my EKG instructors that if the heart rate is less than 120 or 130, it becomes much less likely to be VTAC, in which case you do start thinking about some of those mimics. But if that heart rate's over 120, 130, it's regular, and I don't see clear-cut sinus activity, I'm just going to call it VTAC almost every time. You know, it's interesting because I'm just thinking about the evolution of when I was training, that's exactly what we learned. And then it seemed like every year some new rule or algorithm came out and every time an ECG came up, that was wide complex. You'd see a bunch of emergency doctors crowded around a table trying to figure out if it's VTAC or if it's left bundle branch block or what it is. But that's beautiful. I mean, I love that we're just going back to keeping it simple because when you have that patient who's, you know, on the verge of going sour... You know, you don't want to be messing around with these different rules that don't have 100% accuracy. Let me just add something. I completely agree with both of you. The vast majority of white complex tachycardias are VT, as we've heard. There's two additional thoughts I want to offer. One is if the patient is over age 55 and they have a history of heart disease, for example, our patient that you just presented, the chances that they have VT without looking at the ECG is about 98% to 99%. Wow. So that was published about 25 years ago, a large series of white complex tachycardias. The most sensitive marker of the origin is not the ECG. It's the patient's age and whether they have or have not had any history of heart disease. Wow. That's a pearl. So, I mean, so far we've been talking about how the rate can help us you know, below 120, unlikely to be VTAC. And we were talking about it in the neuro complex. So the age and history of heart disease, that's amazing that that actually trumps any kind of ECG Without algorithm. a doubt. Now, your listeners may want to know, for the average 28-year-old with no history of heart disease, at least half, if not more than half, of white complex tachycardias in a young, healthy patient is also VT. White complex tachycardias are much more often VT in the general population than they are SVT with aberrancy. So as we've heard, you never go wrong at treating it as VT. I have a colleague of mine who had coined a wonderful term. It was called the verapamil death test. And the verapamil death test is the, inadver- is the administration of verapamil to a patient with white complex tachycardia. If the patient passes the verapamil death test, then, then you're okay. But they don't always pass the test. <laughs> that, that's... Uh... 
that's a tough test to follow. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know, it's it's interesting. You quote these numbers, and and I think everybody has learned that we should always assume it's VTAC based on numbers that clearly favor VTAC. And yet, for some reason, there's this overwhelming urge for people to want to call something SVT. I don't know if that's been your experience, it, but I get is. cases sent to me all the time where people are just looking at the 12 lead. They can't come up with a good reason why it's SVT, but they just don't want to call it VTAC. And they give the calcium channel blocker or whatever, and the patient crashes and burns. And and you just wonder in your mind, you know, every, I always joke that every house staff in every specialty, except maybe ortho, has learned that. You, you always call it VTAC, and yet people just have this overwhelming urge to not want to call it VTAC and, and give medications when you know, you're putting someone's life at stake. I can't help but remark that we're all subject to Stone Age cognition. Our cognitive pathways were designed, if there is a designer, 500,000 to 2 million years ago. And our cognitive pathways are designed to look for unusual or extraordinary things. That's how we've survived as a species. And I think what we're left with in an intellectual specialty like medicine, cardiology, emergency medicine, is that we remember unusual things. We remember the canaries. We are prone to focus because of the nature of the philosophy of education on strange, unusual, weird things. We don't remember the ordinary things because they are not memorable, let's face it. So what people remember is the one case out of 20 that was wide complex tachycardia with aberrancy, and they forget the other 19 out of 20, which was obviously VT, and everybody knew it. Well, Paul, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast for a podcast on the philosophy of medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. So let's review regular wide complex tachydysrhythmias. There's VTAC. SVT with aberrancy, hyper-K, and sodium channel blocker poisoning. When it comes to distinguishing VTAC versus SVT with aberrancy, forget about it. Just assume that it's VTAC, especially if there's AV dissociation and fusion complexes, which are 100% specific for VTAC. Now remember that if a patient is more than 55 years old and has a history of heart disease, the probability that their wide complex tachycardia is VTAC is about 98 to 99%. It turns out that the age and cardiac history are actually a more sensitive marker for VTAC than the ECG itself. And even in young, otherwise healthy patients, at least half of those patients with wide complex tachycardias will have VTAC. You don't want to find yourself experimenting with the verapamil death test. And don't forget your great imitator, hyper-K when it comes to wide complex tachy. Always keep it in mind in your renal failure patients, especially if the patient is unstable and your shocks aren't working, give calcium. And in the tox patient, and in your tox patient, always consider a sodium channel blocker poisoning if they have a wide, regular tachy. All right, we've mentioned unstable versus stable patients. And sometimes when a trainee asks me, well, how do you know if a patient's stable and unstable? I'm actually not exactly sure how to answer them. Can you guys give us your take on what unstable versus stable actually means? Because the ACLS guidelines and in all the textbooks, it says, you know, if they're unstable, shock. If they're not unstable, 
you have time, you can use medications, et cetera. So how do you actually determine whether someone's stable or unstable? Well, if you follow ACLS, ACLS gives you very, you know, large guidelines for what is considered unstable. There's four main criteria that they use. If somebody has hypotension, if somebody has decreased level of consciousness, somebody has acute heart failure that you think is due to the arrhythmia, or if somebody is having acute ischemic chest pain. So in other words, they are hypoperfusing because of the arrhythmia. Those would be considered unstable tacky or brady dysrhythmias. You know, I think there's probably a little bit more than just those general four points and a certain level of gestalt and, and clinical judgment comes into it. A person may have a blood pressure of 115, but if their baseline blood pressure is 180, they're relatively hypotensive. So you can't just go by the overtly hypotensive of 90 or whatever. But those are the general guidelines. Paul, I don't know if you have yeah, any, I, some I, more specifics. I so. could totally agree. The other thing I would offer is the following. What we would like to know as practitioners is what is the cardiac output? What is the coronary and brain and renal blood flow? Because we're trying to perfuse the vital organs during tachycardia. We meaning as we're the patient. The problem is, is that many practitioners, and we see this everywhere, understandably, but unfortunately, equate blood pressure with flow, not equatable. Most patients with tachycardias get peripheral vasoconstriction. Emergency doctors see this all the time, and somebody with a GI bleed or hemorrhage, you can have a blood pressure of 110 and be in incipient shock. And when you go into shock, it's abrupt and immediately life-threatening in hemorrhagic shock. Similarly with tachyarrhythmias, in patients with particularly pre-existing heart disease, which is usually the scenario with ventricular tachycardia, patients seem stable, but yet when they deteriorate, they deteriorate very quickly because their cardiac output is very low. And when the electrophysiologists get to see them after they've been cardioverted or they get better, they have shock liver, they have prolonged hypotension, their ventricular function is down because they spent an hour or two seemingly stable, but not stable. So very clearly, hypotension is unstable, but beware of a patient who is not completely crisp in terms of their mentation, who's a little cold and clammy, who looks uncomfortable, who's fidgety, who looks a bit gray. It just requires some thinking about that these patients, even though their blood pressure may be 115 systolic, may in fact have a very low cardiac output. Mm -hmm. You know, one thought, I think that over the years, I have found that people have moved further and further away from wanting to shock patients, even though we've got fantastic sedatives. And yet it still seems to me that cardioversion is still the fastest, perhaps the safest thing that we can do for a lot of these patients. As long as you remember to synchronize your shock on the R wave, that's the one big danger. But basically electricity is unbelievably effective and safe and let's take the worst case scenario, which I completely agree with my colleague, you don't wanna shock somebody in sinus rhythm, but if they're asleep and you shock them on the R wave in sinus rhythm, you haven't hurt them. If you take ventricular tachycardia, for example, you know, I think really first line therapy could very well be shock. As I recall in the international guidelines that were put together by the AHA and the European Society altogether, the use of medications was class two, but people don't realize class one was actually sedate and shock, stable VTAC. It probably has the highest level of evidence. And yet for VTAC, the first thing that everybody wants to do is try to come up with a reason to use medications. Now, I'm not saying that you haphazardly go around and shock everybody that you see, but I really think that 
Cardioversion is going to be the best, fastest, and safest thing to do for most tachydisrhythmias. In Canada, I think you guys are much further along than we are in terms of early cardioversion of atrial fibrillation, at least. I don't know about the other tachydisrhythmias, but you know, I'd have to say in many, many other countries, I've seen the same reluctance to shock. And I think people should remember that it is still very safe and very effective. So that actually brings up the safety. Dr. Dorian, you had mentioned, yeah, sure, if the patient just ate three hamburgers, there's various reasons why you wouldn't want to shock. And that you did mention, even if you shock someone in sinus tachycardia, as long as you sync them properly, that it's harmless. What are the potential harms of shocking a patient? The reason why I ask is because, you know, for whatever reason, there's this reluctance to shock people. So So there's a couple of things you have to watch out for. If you're not careful with your sedatives, you can certainly, there's a very tiny risk of very, very small if the sedation is used carefully. Depends on probably beyond the scope of our discussion here, which sedatives you use at what dose. But there's a potential risk of vasodilatation and hypotension in a patient who gets a very large dose of sedatives. Mm, like, th- like this patient, for example, with a history of cardiomyopathy, you know, their pressure might be a bit soft. Yeah, that, that is correct. But in the observational studies have suggested that if done using approved doses or usual doses of sedation, that the risk is very small. There's a very small risk of aspiration. There's a very small risk of sinus node dysfunction following a shock that's easily treated in an emergency setting. So some patients, we have to be aware that you give them a shock and the shock then produces transient sinus node dysfunction. Many of these patients with VTAC may be on rate-slowing drugs, beta blockers, for example, may have sinus node disease. So the first heartbeat after the shock may be five seconds later, but don't sweat it, the heartbeat will come back. It's vanishingly rare to see life-threatening bradycardia after cardioversion, in particularly in a supervised setting like you have in an emergency room. Even though in the first 15 seconds after cardioversion, you may see two heartbeats, in the next 15 seconds, you might see five heartbeats, by 30 seconds later, the patient will have some kind of perfusing rhythm in almost all instances. Okay, let's compare that safety profile of shocking a patient to, generally speaking, the safety of giving amiodarone or procainamide or metoprolol or diltiazem. Those are probably the four most common medications used in the emergency department for tachydysrhythmias. In general, what are the harms of amiodarone or procainamide? Or, or Let's talk about amiodarone and procainamide first, since those are sodium and potassium channel blockers, primarily sodium channel blockers, and are certainly advocated for the treatment of ventricular tachycardia. A procainamide, at least in one comparative study, was the most effective drug. There's a fair number of studies suggesting that procainamide is reasonably safe and reasonably effective in treating ventricular tachycardia. I'm not a big fan of procainamide. It does cause vasodilatation and some degree of hypotension. It is short-term therapy. We hardly ever use oral procainamide or procainamide by infusion. Electrophysiologists would use it, but it's not something that I would normally advocate. So you use it in the instant of ventricular tachycardia, but most patients today would end up on amiodarone as longer-term therapy. Although procainamide, as I said, is reasonably effective with a proviso that it can cause hypotension, particularly if given too quickly. And it's not going to be the maintenance drug after the chemical cardioversion. Amiodarone takes much longer to take effect. The 
short-term use of amiodarone has to be done very carefully. If you give it into a peripheral vein, you can get phlebitis. If you give it into a small vein and you give it too quickly, then you can get hypotension because the diluent, which is tween 80, it's polyethylene glycol, it's like antifreeze. The diluent is a vasodilator and it causes hypotension in anybody if given too quickly and even if it's given at normal rates. So we are quite conservative with giving amiodarone as a load, except in the cardiac arrest situation, which is a different topic altogether. So amiodarone is somewhat effective, but it usually takes a while for it to take effect. So if the purpose is let's get the patient into sinus rhythm right now, then I'm not sure amiodarone is a great therapy either. So that leaves us then with cardioversion, which is where we started. And can I say, just for the listeners out there, especially the younger ones, we're not trying to advocate that you just shock everybody, but this really applies to the people that are a little bit on the bubble. You know, maybe somebody who's not overtly hypotensive or somebody who doesn't have a decreased LOC and so on. But as Paul was saying, they're a little bit cool and clammy and and you get the sense that they're not perfusing well. Those are the patients in whom oftentimes people just kind of putts around giving a little bit of this medication, a little bit of that medication, then they're slowly getting a little bit worse. And you know what? Those are the patients that you ought to really think about the cardioversion up front. If somebody is wide awake and alert and they're texting and asking for a chicken sandwich, you know, fine, use your medications for them. But the people that are kind of borderline, those are the patients that you shouldn't wait till they're overtly hypotensive or overtly in shock before you shock them. Although you could tell them that texting is bad for your health. (laughs) (laughs) There's another podcast. (laughs) Let's get more into detail about SVT. Dr. Matu, I sometimes have difficulty distinguishing between SVT and a fib or flutter. How can you suggest to our listeners, what are the best ways to distinguish between those dysrhythmias? I think a very important piece of medical equipment that people don't carry is calipers. And so I think that if you have calipers, you can easily, I think you can easily distinguish a fib from the others because by definition, it's going to be irregular. SVT is usually clockwork regular. So get your calipers out or God forbid you make a little hash marks on a piece of paper and you map it out, but you should be able to appreciate the irregularity of atrial fibrillation. And then flutter versus SVT can oftentimes be difficult. One of the clues to flutter, as Paul had mentioned, is the heart rate is just clockwork 150 plus or minus five or so, plus or minus two or three actually. The ventricular rate is 150 and the atrial rate will be double that. And I find that if you really do take a good close look in all 12 leads, instead of just looking at lead two, which is the rhythm strip that the computer looks at and the computer gives you, if you look in all 12 leads, oftentimes there'll be one or two other leads, especially V1, which will give you the answer and you'll see the flutter waves. So you just have to really look carefully. And then one other clue that I learned from my EKG master, Edward Chung, who taught us EKGs from the cardiology standpoint and residency was something called the Bix rule, which is essentially if you see a P wave that is just halfway between QRS complexes, very, very often it turns out to be flutter. So it's just a nice little clue. If the P wave that you see 
is halfway between two QRS complexes, there's a really good chance that there are P waves that are hidden within the QRS complexes and it's actually flutter. I agree entirely with that. Two other additional thoughts. One is atrial flutter is an arrhythmia that has continuous atrial activity. The atria are moving continuously. There is no isoelectric baseline on the ECG. So look carefully between the T as in Thomas and the next QRS. And if you see a straight line, that's usually not flutter. And if you do the mental subtraction, remove the QRS complexes and the T waves, from the ECG and you see a wave line, a wavy line or a sine wave or a baseline that refuses to be horizontal, then think flutter. I wanna emphasize the usefulness of a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen. I know these are outmoded ancient devices, but a piece of paper and a pen is the easiest instrument to use when you're looking at heart rhythms. Just take five or 10 consecutive QRS complexes and just put a line corresponding to the QRS peak and just line it up and move it over another 10 complexes. In SVT, the rate is usually exactly bang on regular to within a millisecond. Obviously, there's some rare exceptions. If the QRS complexes are bang on exactly the same from beat to beat to beat over 10 beats, then it's unlikely to be atrial fibrillation. I got to say, Amal, though, you are an ECG nerd if you're carrying around calipers. I, yes, I get calipers for all of our residents also. Engraved <laughs> calipers, no less. Awesome. But, yeah. <laughs> it is cool to be nerdy now, though, <laughs> in 2018, for sure. All right, so we just talked about the difference between SVT and AFib, a flutter. What about SVT and sinus tachy? That one comes up quite often, actually where you're trying to figure out whether it's sinus tachy or SVT, and obviously the treatment's going to be very different. Although if you shock sinus tachy, like you were saying, Dr. Dorian, as long as you're sinking, you're still going to be okay. Dr. Matu, what are your pearls there? So again, just like Paul was saying, the SVT is really clockwork regular. Sinus tachy usually has a little bit of variability. You will probably see some variability if the patient's moving around, for example. If you give them a little fluid bolus, the heart rate may come down a little bit. If the patient is very anxious, but they relax, turn the lights off, let them lay down, the heart rate tends to come down a little bit. SVT doesn't tend to do that. So sinus tack will usually show a little bit of variability. Another rule that I recall learning is that, generally speaking, the maximum sinus rate that somebody will mount is 220 minus their age. And so, for example, if you have an 80-year-old who has a ventricular response of 160, then that's simply generally going to be too fast for an 80-year-old. Now, if it's a 20-year-old, that's a little bit different. So that's another clue. And then once again, I would emphasize looking in all 12 leads. If you look carefully in all 12 leads, oftentimes you'll see or you'll be able to distinguish between the sinus beats versus an SVT. Not always, but again, just to emphasize you've got to look in all 12 leads, not just in one or two leads. So those are some of the ways of distinguishing other things from SVT. So let's say you've decided that it's SVT. Before we get onto the drugs for SVT, the big news a couple of years ago was the REVERT trial, you know, the blowing into 10 cc's in a syringe that would help convert to SVT. And the trial actually showed incredible results. But I've personally found that it works maybe 25% of the time. I think the studies showed that it works 43% of the time with a number needed to treat of only three. 
Dr. Matsu, what's your take on the modified Valsalva maneuver from the revert trial? I've had a little success with it. Probably our numbers are similar to yours. And so it's not a magical cure. We'll try various vagal maneuvers and that will be one of them. All right. Yeah. One of the arguments I heard about the revert trial was that they actually didn't compare it to a good Valsalva maneuver, which is having the patient lying supine while they're doing the Valsalva maneuver and that they compared it to them sitting up doing the Valsalva maneuver, which would, of course, make some difference, you'd think. We've traditionally used adenosine for a presumed SVT as the first-line drug. Dr. Dorian, what does the latest literature say when it comes to first-line for SVT? Should it be adenosine or diltiazem? There's one study, I don't remember the exact details, that suggested that IV diltiazem was slightly more effective than IV adenosine, One observation we have made where adenosine has failed to work, particularly the six initial six milligram dose, but also the second 12 milligram dose, that it wasn't given push into a large vein. If you give it slowly, it doesn't work. You have to give the entire dose over a microsecond if you can. And then it works pretty well, probably 85 to 95% of the time. The downside of adenosine, to the extent there's a downside, number one, patients feel really horrible. In my outpatient clinic, I can tell when a patient's had adenosine. I asked them, when you went to the emergency room and they gave you an intravenous, did you feel like you were going to die? And if they say yes, then I know they received adenosine. 100% sensitive as a clinical pearl or sign. (laughs) The problem with adenosine is not that it doesn't work. It works very well. But many patients have recurrences of their SVT minutes after the original event, whatever it was that caused it, the atrial premature beats, the autonomic milieu is not fixed. And one could make an argument, we haven't advocated this very strongly, but it would be reasonable to say the advantage of deltaism is that it's, let's argue, at least as effective as adenosine, may not work quite as quickly, but that it has a longer duration of effect so that it's much more likely that the patient will remain stable for the eMERGE doc long enough for you to get them out of your eMERGE, which is your whole point in life. (laughs) Dr. Matsu? I agree. We oftentimes use adenosine, and it's got to be given as a very, very rapid push. Hopefully a proximal vein will sometimes even raise the arm up to get a little gravity involved. And if it doesn't work after the first or second dose, we'll go to the diltiazem as a second line. But there are some patients that come in saying, I don't want that drug because they, they know exactly what it is and we'll just go right to the diltiazem. So it's, it's, it's not a huge quandary. Some people like the diltiazem, some people like the adenosine, whichever one they want is fine. All right. I know that if I was a patient, I would want the diltiazem. And it's often a good idea to think, you know, if you were the patient or your loved one was a patient, what would you do? And to me, it's a no brainer, diltiazem. Your listeners may be interested to know that there's an investigational drug called etripamil, which is a chemical congener of verapamil, which can be given intranasally. It's a spray. It reaches peak blood levels in about 30 seconds. And in the EP lab, we have presented this. So this is in the public domain. In the EP lab, it has about an 80% termination rate of induced AV node reentry and AV reentry. The drug is about to go into phase two studies. So it may be in a couple of years that we're going to have a nasal spray that the patients can take home with them, which is a rapidly effective calcium channel blocker. Wow. That'll be exciting if it pans out. 
All right, before we move on from SVT, another reason maybe not to use adenosine is when caffeine is on board. Dr. Dorian, my understanding is that adenosine might not actually work when someone's recently ingested caffeine. Is this true? It's partially true. We know that aminophilin, for example, is the antidote to um, adenosine. So stimulation of adenosine receptors can be antagonized by certain sympathomimetics, particularly xanthine oxidase inhibitors. So it's at least in theory, caffeine sympathetic stimulation can antagonize the effect of adenosine. I don't know how well the clinical pattern has been established. And now for EBM Bottom Line. Hey folks, it's Justin Morgenstern back with an EBM Bottom Line. The management of SVT, or more specifically reentrant tachycardias, is just one of those topics that can get me a little worked up. I've been known to rant. I've been known to raise my voice. But instead of me ranting, let's just look at some evidence. My question is, when you have a patient with SVT and vagal maneuvers have failed, what's the best management strategy? When I was in residency, the only option I was taught was adenosine. That's it. However, there was a time before adenosine when everybody used calcium channel blockers. So the real question, is adenosine actually any better than a calcium channel blocker? And I'll tell you right now, I look at the evidence and I actually think it's worse. There's an RCT by Lim in 2009. And that's probably the best individual trial. They had 206 patients with SVT. They were randomized to either adenosine or a calcium channel blocker. And the calcium channel blockers were actually better here. They converted patients more often, 98% as compared to 87% with adenosine. Now, there was a single patient in the calcium channel group who became hypotensive, so about 1%, but that was short-lived and resolved on its own. And adenosine was more expensive. So trial number one, Adenosine works less well and is more expensive. There's also a Cochrane review on the topic, Holgate 2006. They found eight RCTs and conclude that there's no difference between adenosine and calcium channel blockers in terms of conversion rate. And there was also no difference in terms of major adverse events, but there was a significant increase in minor adverse events using adenosine. So 11% as compared to less than 1% with calcium channel blockers. And we all know this. Adenosine is a horrible drug for patients. And that's where I tend to rant a little. Because I've had many patients describe adenosine as the worst experience in their life. I've had multiple patients sit at home with SVT for hours because they were afraid to come into the emergency department. They didn't want to get adenosine. And that gives me pause. Our patients should never, ever be afraid to seek our help. So the EBM bottom line here, well, there really isn't a difference between adenosine and calcium channel blocker. Both are effective. Both are options. But evidence-based medicine is more than just the literature. You have to consider patient preference and you have to use your clinical expertise. For patient preference, so far, every patient I've met prefers calcium channel blockers. And I think that's important. I don't want patients scared to come back to the emergency department because we cause them pain. So personally, I prefer calcium channel blockers. But another option is to simply acknowledge how painful adenosine is and offer patients appropriate sedation. Finally, the last part of evidence-based medicine is clinical expertise. And although I personally greatly prefer calcium channel blockers, you have to be careful. Calcium channel blockers are a bad option if the patient has significant underlying cardiomyopathy or if they start hypotensive. In both of those cases, I'll use something else. 
From a practical standpoint, you are going to get a few patients who might become hypotensive, but almost all of them just resolve on their own. Just give it a few minutes, repeat the blood pressure, and it'll be gone. But you probably should be ready to give the patient a little calcium or, or bolus. The most important thing to me is just go slow. There's no rush at all here. If you're using diltiazem, the majority of patients convert by 15 milligrams. You don't need big doses and you don't need to push them. I personally run 15 milligrams of diltiazem over about 10 minutes, nice and slow. And it almost always works with the benefit of zero pain and a very happy patient. So that's the data. If you go strictly by the data, there's probably no difference between adenosine and calcium channel blockers. So I think you can decide for yourself. But remember, evidence-based medicine involves more than the data. Patient experience, patient opinion is also really important. And I think if you consider the patient experience here, you'll probably find yourself reaching for a calcium channel blocker more and more often. That's it for the EBM bottom line. So I want to circle back now to our discussion on ventricular tachycardia. We've already established the simple great rule that if you're trying to decide whether it's VTAC or not, and the patient is unstable or close to unstable, just assume that it's VTAC. But it is important, I think, to know what the VTAC mimics are in case it turns out not to be VTAC. So Dr. Matu, could you just go through for us what the VTAC mimics are? What are the things we should be thinking about when we're thinking, hmm, I'm not sure if this is VTAC or not. Could it be something else? What are those other things that could be dangerous? Sure. Well, there's three that come to mind that we've kind of alluded to two of them already. One would be hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia is the great imitator or the syphilis of electrocardiography, right? It, it can look like anything. It oftentimes will give you a wide complex tachycardia because as your potassium rises, your P waves flatten out and disappear, leaving just a wide QRS complexes. And if the rate's faster than 100, your computer is going to call it VTAC. Typically, not always, but typically hyperkalemia mimicking VTAC will be at rates under that 120 to 130 or so. So that should help you out. Sodium channel blocker toxicity can do it as well. And we talk about hyperkalemia and sodium channel blocker toxicity together because hyperkalemia essentially acts like a sodium channel poison. So they tend oftentimes to look similar. And sodium channel blocker toxicity also oftentimes can produce something that looks like VTAC, but at somewhat slower rates of 100, 110, 120 or so. The one other pearl that can help you in terms of deciding that you're dealing with a tox or metabolic condition rather than VTAC is that tox and metabolic conditions sometimes can give you extraordinarily wide QRS complexes, greater than 200 milliseconds, greater than 220, 240 milliseconds. So when the QRS starts getting that wide, it's worth thinking about the mimics as well. And then the one other mimic that people need to be aware of is accelerated idioventricular rhythm, which we used to see a number of years ago before cath labs were so available when we was to treat our STEMIs with thrombolytics. And typically when the thrombolytic would really work, about 45 minutes later, 60, 90 minutes later, the artery would open up and the patient would go into this wide complex tachycardia with the rate of 100, 110, 120. Your machine calls it VTAC and the treatment of choice is to just put your hands in your pockets and, and step nothing. away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, it I resolves. Those. Yeah, it resolves after, you know, sometimes 10 or 20 seconds. Worst case scenario, it lasts long enough for people to get a 12 lead and then panic. And I've got at least three or four cases of AIVR 
where patients were given lidocaine or amiodarone and went right into asystole and died. So when you see that, essentially that post-reperfusion arrhythmia, the accelerated idioventricular rhythm, your tip-off there is that the rate is less than 120 to 130. Sometimes people, in fact, call it slow VTAC. And when you see that, just wait a couple minutes and it goes away. It's not a destabilizing rhythm. So those rhythms still show up every now and then. For example, if somebody spontaneously reperfuses, even before they go to the cath lab or before getting lytics, you may see that rhythm. So again, the key point there is that be hesitant to call something VTAC when the rate is only 110 or only 120, and be hesitant to call it VTAC when the QRS is extraordinarily wide, as we talked about. So those are the three major mimics that I think people need to be on the lookout for. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to think clinically, you're thinking a patient could be VTAC, you're not sure, as we said before, if they're unstable or you think they're going to be unstable, just shock them. So I suppose if you shock them and nothing changes, then that's really when you should be thinking, could this patient be hyper-K and what they really need is some calcium? Sure. The electrocardiographic clue often is an ECG that looks a little bit like a sine wave, but where the peaks of the sine waves are very tall. So a kind of a tall looking sine wave, think hyperkalemia, or the most common drug probably would be tricyclic antidepressant overdose, because these are the patients that tend to take overdoses. You can get it with an antirhythmic drug overdose, but I hope our patients, the arrhythmia patients, are not that depressed. So Dr. Dorian, my understanding is that there's actually two different kinds of VTAC that are actually treated differently. And this is something I've never heard of before. Could you give our listeners an explanation of what you mean by two different flavors of VTAC and how those you might choose differently? So it's basically two different flavors of patient. And they're quite distinct. Obviously, there's always overlaps. One flavor is a middle-aged or older patient who has a history of prior heart attack or prior bypass or prior cardiomyopathy, and they are known to have cardiac disease and they present with what I call scar-mediated ventricular tachycardia. That's the most common. Generally, there's a clinical set, previous heart disease, not normal electrocardiogram before, if you have access to it before the VT. And they're the ones that we think about where you might use procainamide or amiodarone or cardioversion. They're generally older and they have prior heart disease. The second flavor, which is not rare, is in a younger patient, typically in their 20s or 30s, that has activity or exercise-induced ventricular tachycardia. We call this idiopathic ventricular tachycardia. They generally have normal ventricular function. The most common ECG manifestation is a left bundle branch block inferiorly directed axis. So the QRS complexes look like their left bundle, meaning they're going from right to left, if you like, and the axis is downward, vertical. So these arrhythmias come from the right ventricular outflow tract. They're not rare. They typically present as long runs of non-sustained VT, 10, 20, 30, 40 beats, a couple of sinus beats, then another 10, 20, 30, 40 beats of VT, or sometimes just sustained VT, often starting with exercise or sympathetic stimulation. These patients do not need cardioversion. They do not need antiarrhythmic drugs. They're generally very stable. Rate is typically 130 to 170, and we treat them with beta blockers, IV or orally. And the long-term treatment is either beta blockers or radiofrequency ablation as the definitive treatment. But 
I would not treat a 28-year-old with what looks like VT if they're previously healthy and they have this particular ECG manifestation, I would not treat them with an antiarrhythmic. And these are usually non-sustained VTAC, is that they're correct? They're typically non-sustained, okay. but not three, five beats. They're 10, 20, 30, 40 beats. Rarely you can have it for a couple of minutes, but if you watch them long enough, the clue is that they go in and out of VT. They don't stay in VT for 20 minutes. They're in it for 30 seconds, a minute. They have a few sinus beats, maybe 10 seconds of sinus, then back into VT. Mm. And the treatment is TLC, psychotherapy, Valium mm. for the doctors, Valium for the nurses, Valium for the patient, and beta blockers. And they tend to stay relatively stable? They're the, extremely okay. stable. Those mm. patients, I tell them if they have VT at home, don't come to hospital, give me a phone call. You mm. take them to Operlol at home and it settles down. There's another entity which is very different, which is called catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Have two martinis and see if you can say that and <laughs> I'll buy you a beer. CPVT for short. That is a heritable disorder, typically occurs in teenagers or patients in their 20s. It causes a polymorphic VT called bidirectional ventricular tachycardia, almost always with exercise, nasty looking arrhythmias, potentially life-threatening, very rare. We've already talked about how for most patients with VTAC, except for these young ones with intermittent VTAC, that you're going to be shocking them if they're unstable or even close to unstable. Let's say you've got the rock solid stable patient with VTAC. What are your best medication options to convert them to normal sinus and why? Well, I think based on the literature that we have in emergency medicine, we've really shifted back towards procainamide. A lot of the young physicians have never used procainamide before. And so to my colleagues, I say procainamide is back. To the younger physicians, I say procainamide is here <laughs> since they've never used it before. And we have procainamide in our emergency department as first line, and we will use amiodarone if for some reason we don't want to use procainamide. But I, I think that regardless of what medication you use, you have to be prepared for the potential of hypotension or decompensation, and you always have to have that defibrillator ready to go as well. Mm -hmm. And that's based on the Procamio trial? Well, I, there were studies even before that. In 2006 or 2007, there was uh, the European Society and the AHA and the ACC and quite a few cardiology societies got together and wrote out guidelines for management of ventricular dysrhythmias. And a small portion of that was relevant to the emergency department. And in that, Back then, they put procainamide as a preferred drug for stable VTAC, you know, presuming that the patient has a relatively preserved ejection fraction. And that was news to a lot of people. It didn't get a lot of publicity in emergency medicine, but it was news to a lot of people who had really largely switched over to amiodarone for anything wide. And the data was coming out showing that even back then that procainamide is probably a bit better than amiodarone. And in 2010, AHA finally caught up in the ACLS guidelines. They put procainamide back above amiodarone as class 2A versus 2B. But again, just a reminder that these are class 2s. Class 1 is still sedation and cardioversion. So if people prefer amiodarone, it's not worth an argument. I think whatever drug you want to use is probably reasonable as long as you remember that either one has side effects and you need to always be ready to cardiovert the patient if there's any instability that develops. That's kind of our take on things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us are becoming more familiar with procainamide because at least in Canada, 
mostly because of Ian Steele's work mm-hmm. on his autoaggressive protocol for atrial fibrillation, we're becoming more comfortable with procainamide. So, you know, the evidence would suggest that procainamide probably is better than amiodarone for stable VTAC. Dr. Dorian? I think the only thing I would add is it helps to remember what the arrhythmia is caused by. We've been talking about what we might call sustained monomorphic ventricular tachycardia, which is caused by a scar around which circulates a stable reentrant rhythm. And ischemia may be a consequence, but it's not the cause. And in that situation, putting the portions of the circuit to sleep with a sodium channel blocker like procainamide makes sense. Simple way to remember it is give about a gram, which is for most people about 15 milligrams per kilo, and don't give it too fast, over about 20 minutes. And it's reasonably effective and reasonably safe. Amiodarone is a drug, at least in theory, and there's some imperfect evidence that it's more effective in situations of acute myocardial ischemia or infarction, where the arrhythmia is different. It's polymorphic. It's usually associated with signs and symptoms of myocardial ischemia on the ECG or clinically. So in a situation where you have polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, which isn't quite what we're talking about, then you might have a preference for amiodarone to the extent that we believe that it might be effective with incomplete evidence, to be clear. In sustained monomorphic VT, scar-mediated VT, makes reasonable sense to use procainamide. Okay. And I guess if you're stuck for whatever reason, you can't use procainamide for whatever reason, you've got amiodarone, there's also lidocaine. For sustained monomorphic VT, the evidence that lidocaine works is very scant. One good study published in about the late 1980s, about 100 patients, lidocaine worked in about 15 out of the 100, not very often, probably this sustained idiopathic VT. Procainamide in that particular study was the most effective. Okay, so it's procainamide for sustained VTAC. What about the patient who you've just diagnosed with ACS in the emergency department, and then they go into VTAC? I just want to clarify, is that the patient that you might consider amio over procainamide? In the absence of compelling evidence, I definitely would consider amiodarone. We know that amiodarone, at least in the experimental setting, is an anti-adrenergic agent in addition to being antiarrhythmic. And those patients, their ischemia is not going to disappear. Eventually, they may go to the cath lab, but they'll be ischemic for the next minutes or hours. And procainamide in the setting of myocardial ischemia probably is more likely to be proarrhythmic. So I would avoid potent sodium channel blockers with ischemia. Amiodarone is a sodium channel blocker, but it has lots of other effects as well. So in ischemia, I would avoid procainamide. Mm-hmm. Well, that partially answers the question that my colleague and co-podcaster Justin Morgenstern wanted to know the answer to was, is there really any role for amiodarone at all in the emergency department anymore? Because more and more, you know, the Procamo trial, we've just discussed how for sustained VTAC, that procainamide is better, you know, for atrial fibrillation, we have better choices for almost everything. But here's one example where you might still consider amio. Are there any other examples where amiodarone would be considered your first-line medication in a tachydysrhythmia? Absolutely, yes. Any center that follows patients with implanted defibrillators will see many patients, one a week in a big center, with so-called electrical storm. These are individuals that have frequent episodes of ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation, 
that are treated effectively by the defibrillator, but patients find it intolerable to get frequent shocks from their defibrillator. It occurs in about 20% at some point of all patients with an implanted ICD. And those patients with frequent episodes of VT, which we colloquially call electrical storm, the standard treatment everywhere is intravenous amiodarone because we don't expect it to be immediately effective in the next five minutes. So we can afford to give it by infusion and not a large loading dose, thereby avoiding some of the hypotension effects. And it is the drug that they're likely to stay on for a day or two or three to sort of calm the storm. We rarely use procainamide infusions for days and days anymore because of the risk of sodium channel toxicity. So in our practice, we have at any moment in time, maybe one or two patients in the hospital receiving IV amiodarone. Usually we started in the emergency room. All right. So there's two situations where amio might be your go-to drug. One is in the ICD patient in VTAC, and the other is in the patient who has an ischemic event who goes into VTAC. Otherwise, procainamide is your go-to. I just wanted to highlight a couple of points that Dr. Dorian made that I don't think are well-known in emergency medicine and that is that amiodarone is part beta blocker. So, and that I assume is why it is preferred in the setting of ischemia because it has beta blocking effects, which are good. And that's not typically taught or known. And then the other point that he made was that patients that have ischemia, when they go into VTAC, they tend to develop polymorphic VTAC, not monomorphic VTAC usually monomorphic VTAC is usually not the result of ischemia, but is usually the result of a scar. So if you have a patient who comes in with ACS symptoms and you're going to admit them for ACS and they suddenly go into VTAC, probably polymorphic, amiodarone is the drug to use, not procainamide, because the polymorph VTAC is more likely from the ischemia. If your patient comes in with monomorphic, it probably wasn't ischemia. And in that patient, the procainamide is good. I don't think that's well talked about in emergency medicine. People just lump all VTACs together, and there's actually some differences. So the more you learn, the more you realize that things are not just black and white. Yeah, I I couldn't have summarized that better myself, Alma. Dr. Doran, you had mentioned ICD and VTAC storm. Let's say you've got a patient that comes in, they have an ICD, and they're complaining of increasing frequency of shocks and a triage. They're in VTAC storm. They're brought into the resuscitation room. I have to admit that whenever I see a patient with an ICD that I feel a bit insecure because I find the management of these patients very confusing and challenging, I just call the cardiologist as soon as possible. You know, we reviewed the management of VFib and unstable VTAC and electrical storm in our ACLS guidelines episode, but we didn't talk about the ICD patient. So we already mentioned that amiodarone might be a good choice in these patients, but can you just run us through how to deal with VTAC storm in a patient with an ICD? There's, again, two flavors of VTAC storm to be simplistic about it. One is a patient has an ICD and you see wide complex tachycardia and the ICD is just sitting there doing nothing. The most common reason is not because the ICD is ineffective. It's because the VT is too slow for the ICD to recognize it. 
Most of the time, if we have no other information, these are guideline-based, we program the ICD to detect any rate faster than about 175, 180 as VT. So patient has a defibrillator and their VT is 160 beats per minute, often the defibrillator will not recognize it because that's how it's programmed. We call that VT below detect. So if you see a patient with VT, usually not that fast and the ICDs do nothing, it may well be because the way it's programmed, not that the ICD isn't working. And then you treat them just like any other VT. Usually these are not that fast. If the defibrillator is working, then there's again, two more flavors. One is the defibrillator is successfully terminating the VTAC, either with anti-tachycardia pacing, which you can see on the screen in front of you, a burst of paced beats faster than the VT and the arrhythmia stops, or fails to stop and then the patient gets a shock, and the treatment is working, but it's happening over and over again, then the treatment is not the treatment of VTAC, the treatment is the prevention of future episodes of VTAC. Same idea, but it's not exactly the same because the defibrillator is taking care of the VTAC. It's just that you need something to prevent the next episode from happening. And that's different from the defibrillator just is ineffective at getting rid of the VTAC. You get a shock and the VTAC does not go away. It's infrequent, but it happens. Or there's pacing followed by a shock and the patient's still in VTAC. Then you have to think about things that make the defibrillator ineffective, defibrillator malfunction, or an underlying propensity to arrhythmia that is not fixable. Hyperkalemia would be one, sodium channel excess, severe acute heart failure. Those patients are very sick and they require sort of very experienced expert care pretty much immediately. The scenario where the defibrillator is working, typically you have seconds or minutes between the shocks. It's not like you get shocks every 10 seconds then we're preventing the next episode. And then it's basically a cocktail of IV amiodarone, IV beta blocker done carefully because the patients sometimes have a low blood pressure and sedation. There you wanna disconnect the brain from the heart. All right, you've got this piece of metal there and you're shocking the patient potentially. How do you do that? It's not a problem, even if you put the paddles directly over the device. But it turns out the device is usually infraclavicular, and the pads, of course, are going to the right side of the sternum and in the armpit or the back. So the current path usually is pretty far away from the ICD. Modern ICDs are very well insulated against electrical energy, so it'd be very unusual to see damage to the defibrillator from the high energy delivered. So far in what you've described about dealing with the patient with an ICD in VTAC storm, you haven't mentioned a magnet. When and how do you use a magnet to disable the ICD? Sometimes defibrillators give shocks when they're not needed, either because they're inadvertently or erroneously shocking, let's say, atrial fibrillation with a rapid rate, or they're double counting the T waves, or there's electrical noise. So if you see on the monitor that the patient is not in VTAC, and the defibrillator is giving them a shock, then you can disable the defibrillator by putting a standard pacemaker donut magnet over the device, and it transforms the defibrillator into a VVI pacemaker. So pacing functions are preserved, shocking functions are disabled. If you're not sure what's going on, that there's an urgent situation, the patient's arresting, the defibrillator is just kind of in your way, then just put a magnet over the defibrillator, and treat the patient as you would as if they didn't have a defibrillator. Amal, um, well, do you have a, a magnet in your eMERGE? We do. 
I wouldn't even know where the magnet is. I guess my point is next time you go to your it's, emergency department, you should. It's on your fridge. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little one. Yeah. It's definitely worth everyone out there knowing where the magnet is in the emergency department. Yeah. Logistics become very important when your patient's crashing. On to case number three. Your senior resident calls you to recess overhead. He's just seen a 40-year-old woman, well-known to your ED for alcohol misuse, who presented with palpitations. Aside from a very high heart rate, around 200, her vitals are surprisingly normal. The 12 lead shows an irregularly irregular tachycardia going really fast with QRS complexes that look like they're varying in morphology. Your resident interprets the ECG as atrial fibrillation with bundle branch block. He asks you if he can give amiodarone that he's drawn up. Dr. Matu, what are you going to tell this resident? Well, probably not a great choice. The tip-off there that you gave us was that the morphologies are changing. In my mind, I'm picturing QRS morphologies, some of which are narrow, some are wide, and some are everywhere in between. And that would be very typical for a rhythm of atrial fibrillation with pre-excitation, or usually WPW. And in that scenario, the best option is going to be to sedate and cardiovert. The second best option, if the patient's wide awake and looking at you funny as you approach with the defibrillator, would be to just use procainamide. Procainamide would preferentially suppress the accessory pathway. Of course, you'd want to get a 12-lead EKG and take a good look at those QRS complexes, but it sounds a lot like this is pre-excitation. That is the situation I suspect most of your listeners know where you want to absolutely avoid AV nodal blockers, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers most particularly. Probably also avoid adenosine. There's a few case reports of adenosine given to patients with pre-excited atrial fibrillation, which then leads to ventricular flutter or ventricular fibrillation. Mechanism is complicated, but just leave it like that. If you think there's WPW with pre-excitation, give a drug that will act on the bypass tract, we've heard procainamide, not a drug that acts on the AV node, calcium channel blocker, beta blocker, digoxin, adenosine. So Dr. Matu, giving amiodarone or an AV nodal blocker or even adenosine to a patient with rapid atrial fibrillation, WPW, is a clean kill. Potentially it could be. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we really need to know how to recognize this situation. So could you just give our listeners, sometimes it's quite obvious, but could you just give our listeners the details of how to recognize this? And we'll have some examples on the show notes. Well, if you're dealing with normal atrial fibrillation, generally the QRS complexes are narrow. Generally, all of them are narrow. There might be occasional aberrant conducted beat here and there, but generally they're all narrow. If somebody has atrial fibrillation, and the QRS complexes are wide, then the two things that you need to worry about are AFib with a bundle branch block pattern versus AFib with WPW or pre-excitation. If somebody has AFib with a bundle branch block pattern, generally speaking, the QRS complexes are going to look pretty similar all the way across the strip. There might be a little bit of variability, but generally they're going to look fairly similar. Whereas if there is an accessory pathway that's conducting, you're going to have some complexes going down the normal pathway that produce narrow complexes, some that go down the accessory pathway, which will produce wide complexes, and then some are fusion beats. And that's why the morphology changes so much 
And also because the accessory pathway can conduct so rapidly, there's going to be patches of the rhythm strip or patches of the EKG in which you're going to see rates enormously fast, you know, rates of 250 to 300 beats per minute in certain areas, whereas normal AFib just doesn't go that fast. So the tip-off to tell you that there's pre-excitation is irregular, irregular. Number one, the morphologies are changing significantly. And then number two, the lesser pearl is that in some areas, the rate can be really, really fast. AFib with the left bundle just doesn't tend to vary quite so much and the rate doesn't tend to get, you know, up to 300 in any place. So that those are my clues to make that distinction there. We haven't talked about pad position for shocking. Let's say you want to shock this patient with WPW. Let's say they're unstable. What's the best pad position? What's the evidence out there for the traditional pad position versus the anterior posterior sandwich type pad position for electrical cardioversion? Let me say a few things about pad position and electricity. What we are wishing to do with electrical shocks is to have a current density in every part of the myocardium, which is greater than some arbitrary value, depends on from patient to patient. The way to think about it is if you draw a line from the center of one pad to the center of the other pad, you want that to go through the left ventricle. So it probably doesn't matter that much whether the left-sided pad is in the armpit or in the back if the right-sided pad is to the right of the sternum, provided that a straight line from one pad to the other is an arrow through the heart. That's the mental image we have to have. If it doesn't, and the typical mistake we see commonly, you see this on TV all the time when they have resuscitation, is that the left anterior pad is around where the left nipple is. Not a good idea. The line drawn between the right pad and the left pad in the left nipple area goes through the right ventricle, but not the left ventricle, which is a posterior structure. Now, the small print is that there is a signal for more effective cardioversion for atrial fibrillation, meaning less energy, if you use a left anterior and left posterior pad around the left scapula, where you draw a straight line, it goes right through the heart. Whereas if you have a right anterior and a left axillary pad, it doesn't quite go through most of the left ventricle. But for all intents and purposes, that works very well. So if you have lots of time and you're prepared to spend a little few extra seconds in positioning the posterior pad, we prefer, certainly for elective cardioversions for AFib, the left scapular pad position but the differences are probably a little small. What is important is you have to have good pad-skin contact. If the patient's very hairy, then there's not going to be good contact. If you fail cardioversion, it's often a clue that the oils on the skin are electrical resistors and the electricity is conducted across the skin and not through the thorax, in which case the simple thing to do is lean on the pad. What we do in practice for elective cardioversion is just take a telephone book, put it on the anterior pad, and lean on it. Wow, there's a pearl. Now, of course, this is very different than the cardiac arrest situation where you'd have to take some time to flip the patient over to put a pad on their back, and it might not be worth that extra time of no CPR. But 
Certainly for atrial fibrillation, there is some data to suggest that the sandwich technique might be better, but there are other factors which might be more important than the pad position, like the hairiness and oiliness of the skin, which you need to do something about. Exactly. I just realized I dated myself because telephone books don't exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You had brought up actually that the sandwich pad position has been shown to be better in terms of not needing as much electricity for cardioversion of AFib. Dr. Matu, the ACLS guidelines say for cardioversion of atrial fibrillation that we should start at 100 joules and then go up from there. But it seems like most practitioners will start at 200 joules. What do you recommend in terms of cardioverting AFib? Right. Well, I think what we have always learned and what we've taught is that atrial fibrillation is probably the most difficult arrhythmia to cardiovert electrically is even more difficult than cardioverting ventricular tachycardia, certainly more difficult than SVT or atrial flutter, where we just joke you can rub your feet on the carpet and shock flutter out of it. So with atrial fibrillation, we've always started at 200 joules. And if it doesn't work at that point, then you know, you're probably not going to get success with cardioversion. So I don't know what specifically ACLS says, but can't remember last time we really started at even 100 joules in trying to cardiovert an atrial fibrillation patient. Another way to look at it is just give the maximum energy available for that particular device. Just turn it up to max. Why do I advocate that? First of all, it may be unreasonable to expect the eMERGE doc to remember for every different company that has a different setting what the maximum joules are equivalent to current in milliamperes. The second is that we have to ask ourselves, what is the downside of extra electricity? And the answer is none, zero downside. It's arguable that if you give 20 or 30 shocks in rapid sequence, there might be some cardiac damage, but from one shock, absolutely no difference. The downside of giving insufficient energy is you gave a shock and the patient's still in AFib. And then you're thinking, well, did I have a technical problem? Is the shock not going to work? Do I do it again? Patient's not stirring and waking up. You have to give them some more sedation. Just get on with it. Give the maximum shock energy. If it's going to work, it works. If it's not going to work, then you have to do something different. People's traditional concern has been that when you shock someone's heart, you're causing injury to the heart. So they've always wanted to start at the lowest possible energy. And that's been shown to not be true. So one could easily argue that you might as well just start at maximum for every arrhythmia that you're going to cardiovert, as long as you've sedated them well. Oh, yeah. I like that. Simplified version. Excellent. In emergency medicine, we talk about atrial fibrillation a lot, but we don't seem to talk about atrial flutter as much. Could you just review for us the differences in treatment for atrial fibrillation versus atrial flutter. Dr. Matu, you already had mentioned that they're easier to cardiovert. Anything else different in their management? Yeah, I'm going to turf the details over to Dr. Dorian, but from, uh, again, my simplistic mind, what I've learned is that flutter is easier to electrically cardiovert, but more difficult to pharmacologically cardiovert. I I agree completely. A second consideration is many practitioners, their initial treatment is rate control. The patient's relatively stable. Atrial flutter is not easy to rate control because it's like, if you imagine if you had a dial, the dial has settings. In atrial fibrillation, there's an infinite gradation of settings on the dial from 
heart rate of 170, if that's what the patient comes in, and you give a beta blocker or a calcium blocker, we don't use much digoxin anymore, and the rate goes from 170 to 160 to 150 to 140 to 130. When you have atrial flutter, you have to go from 150 right to 100 because you need a step increase in anti-grade AV nodal refractory periods if you want to get technical. So that rate control is less effective with atrial flutter than it is with atrial fibrillation. It can be frustratingly ineffective. You give a beta blocker and patient's a little hypotensive now and the rate's still 150, which is why cardioversion is really nice. Now, I'm not saying that you should always cardiovert immediately for atrial flutter. You can even use broken amide. It's pretty reasonable as we just talked about. It's just that rate control for atrial flutter tends to be less rewarding than it is for atrial fibrillation. If I may, speaking as an electrophysiologist, the important thing that the patient needs to know and the physician is number one, the rules for anticoagulation are identical for flutter as they are for fib. I'm sure your listeners all know that. The second is that unlike fibrillation, flutter can actually be cured by ablation. All guidelines, international, Canadian, American guidelines, recommend ablation as the first-line treatment for typical sawtooth atrial fibrillation in the inferior leads. The success rate of ablation is 98 99%. Complication rates are very, very low. Different from fibrillation, where ablation is one part of the armamentarium, but much less often successful, higher risks, etc. So self-serving for an electrician to say this, but a patient with typical atrial flutter should not see a family doctor or a cardiologist. They should go straight to an electrophysiologist, in my opinion. Very interesting. When it comes to flutter, which is difficult to rate control, as you said, and atrial fibrillation, I see a lot of people still using metoprolol for rate control. My understanding is that diltiazem actually has pretty solid evidence out there that it may be better in your run-of-the-mill AFib. So this is not the patient who's just had an ischemic event with AFib, but just your run-of-the-mill AFib. Dr. Matu, could you just review the literature for us there on diltiazem versus metoprolol for AFib? Well, the literature that I've seen shows a slight preference towards diltiazem, but you know it's not a groundbreaking difference between the two as far as I'm concerned. And again, in my simple mind, if somebody's already on a beta blocker, I'll go with the beta blocker. If somebody's already on a calcium channel blocker, I'll just give them a calcium channel blocker. If somebody's on both or neither, then I have a slight preference in the non-ischemic patient to giving a calcium channel blocker. The reason that I prefer the calcium channel blocker may be a bit arbitrary, and that is that if the patient does suddenly drop their blood pressure for whatever reason, I have essentially an antidote, calcium, which will reverse the hypotensive effect, but not the chronotropic effect. Whereas if a patient gets a beta blocker and suddenly drops their blood pressure, the antidote, glucagon, will reverse both the hypotension, but also the chronotropic effect, and also it makes them vomit. So again, it's not a huge difference. You know, it's such a small difference to me that I'll just ask the resident, what do you want to use? And if they pick a beta blocker, I'm okay with that. If they pick a calcium channel blocker, then I'm okay with that. I think that there's been a lot of arguing in the emergency medicine world and between EM and cardiology and in the literature about calcium channel blocker versus beta blocker. And I don't, my take on the literature is I don't know that it's really worth spending a lot of arguing time. There's better things to fight about. 
I'm not going to fight about that. <laughs> but I have another perspective. We did a study about 15 years ago where we treated patients with atrial fibrillation and a rapid ventricular rate ranging from 150 to 180, all of whom had substantial LV dysfunction. That was the entry criteria. Ejection fractions ranging from 25 to about 35 or 40%. And we gave them IV deltaism and digoxin. That was the study. It had previously also been done with beta blocker. But just to speak to the safety of calcium blockers, the blood pressure in all cases went up slightly, and we had a nuclear vest on these patients. It's an outmoded technology, but it gives you real-time cardiac output. And the real-time cardiac output increases despite the fact that IV deltaism is a negative inotrope. Because what you gain with rate control is longer diastoles. The heart gets to rest between beats, and therefore more ventricular filling, higher cardiac output. So that we are pretty happy. It's also true for beta blockers, by the way, slight, somewhat negative inotropes. So many practitioners, they see a patient with rapid ventricular rates, patients elderly, they're not sure if they have severe or not LV dysfunction. Obviously, if patient's in shock or acute heart failure, you cardiovert. But a patient's otherwise stable and you're concerned they might have LV dysfunction, you can still give calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker, particularly calcium channel blocker, even though it's a negative inotrope, because the slowing of the heart rate is more hemodynamic benefit than the potential risk of the negative inotropic component. Amazing. <laughs> and here you have a cardiologist supporting diltiazem, which is not too common back where yeah. I work. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I want to talk a little bit about what happens to patients with atrial fibrillation after they leave the emergency department. Dr. Dorian, I understand there was a recent study by Ian Steele and colleagues out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine entitled Outcomes of Emergency Department Patients with Recent Onset Atrial Fibrillation and Flutter Treated in Canadian Hospitals. And it showed that in the 30 days after discharge from the ED, who were either cardioverted or adequately rate controlled, while the serious complication rate was very low, 28% had a return visit within 30 days with more than half of those for an AF-related issue. 6.5% of them had to be cardioverted again. 3.2% had to be admitted to hospital. My understanding is that in the U.S., they admit a lot more patients with AFib to begin with. But this brings up the question, you know, yes, patients are safe to leave the emergency department after they're well-rate-controlled and cardioverted, generally speaking, but how do we avoid this huge bounce-back rate? Fantastic question. I'll try to be brief because I could talk for maybe a day and a half on this. I was one of the authors of that paper, by the way, so I'm very familiar with the literature, and we publish on this quite a bit. Let me be succinct. The downside of quick cardioversion and getting the patients out, even though it is effective and safe, is that patients are insufficiently educated about the uselessness of emergency therapy for atrial fibrillation, not required in almost all instances. I tell my patients who have AFib, I have two, 3,000 patients with AFib that I follow, if you develop AFib, only go to the eMERGE if you're dead. <laughs> and the reason I say this is because the probability that atrial fibrillation, in obviously I don't want to overgeneralize, but for 98% of the population, unless they have terminal heart disease, 
they will not have an infarct, they will not have heart failure, they will not have shock, they will not have a stroke if they wait it out or just take a beta blocker. Once they're in the eMERGE, I completely understand Ian Steele and others feeling, let's just fix it and get them out. Makes complete sense from an eMERGE doc standpoint, and it works. The downside, that's exactly what the paper showed, is these patients then develop a belief, which nobody educates them out of, that the appropriate treatment for AFib is a shock. What they ought to know is the appropriate treatment for AFib, which happens all the time in all kinds of people as outpatients, is a beta blocker and a Valium and a drink and watching Netflix, and it will stop on its own 80% of the time. So what we need to do as a community, in addition to treating patients in the eMERGE, of course, I'm not against that, is coming up with strategies to make sure that these patients, early on after hospital discharge, and this isn't happening, early on after hospital discharge, see a competent family doc, internist, cardiologist. We have an AFib clinic. We do this routinely. And that patient, number one, we ensure that they get the appropriate anticoagulation, which we know is not happening 30 to 50% of the time. This just went off to publication. In, wow, in, still it's not happening. It's not happening even if they see a doctor early after discharge, mm. 30% of the time they don't go, no, majority of the time they get an anticoagulant, but not all the time. Huh, wow, because you know I've seen a huge improvement in the last it, few years over emergency doctors starting anticoagulation in the emergency department, the Canadian guidelines clearly. So the good news is if the eMERGE doc starts an anticoagulant, the probability a year later the patient's on an anticoagulant is about 75%. It's really good, not perfect, but good. If the eMERGE doc doesn't start an anticoagulant, even if the patient sees a family doc, probability in a year they're on an anticoagulant is only 30 or 40%. Wow. I thought we had fixed that problem already. We Obviously ha- We not. haven't fixed, but there's a bigger problem in my mind, which is sort of the hidden problem, which is that if patients aren't appropriately educated and the quick turnaround in the eMERGE is inimical to this education because it's difficult, then the next time patients get AFib, they bounce back to hospital. This is the bounce back. In an earlier paper that Ian Steele and some of his colleagues did, it came out of Vancouver, the one-year bounce-back rate is 70% if you have this aggressive protocol. Because the patients begin to believe, my heart's fluttering, i got to go to the hospital, they'll give me the paddles. That's their belief. And nobody's educated them to the fact that this is a chronic problem, and it's not an emergency problem in vast majority of patients. Well, so, Dr. Dorian, if you're an emergency doctor... What are your discharge instructions for someone that you've just cardioverted? It's make sure that you see somebody who knows what they're doing and can explain to you that this is never fatal, will not harm you, don't sweat the atrial fibrillation, don't read the internet, take your anticoagulant, don't get excited, you're going to be fine, you can lead a normal life, and you need TLC, psychotherapy, and somebody knows what they're doing. There is an understandable tendency when a patient has an ECG or a monitor showing a very rapid rhythm for everybody to get all excited and worried, which is understandable. But my advice to the listeners is to always look at the patient, look at the clinical context, not only at the ECG. You want to treat the patient, not the electrocardiogram. So if it's a young, otherwise well patient, and the context is one where you're unworried that the patient's going to go south quickly, you can take your time and don't rush into doing things. On the other hand, if it's an older patient with heart disease where you're less sure, then you want to try to treat them right away, and usually the best treatment is electricity. So don't only look at the monitor. Also look at the patient. 
right. As always, I'd like to thank my very gifted guests today, Drs. Dorian and Matu. I can't think of a pair of educators that could better deliver the critical take-homes on this sort of core EM topic. From ECGs and clinical pearls to shocks and drugs, you've given us a lot to mull over. It certainly encouraged me to do some further reading on my part. We even made it an entire hour without making a single tacky joke, which I just have to say is an accomplishment in itself. So thank you very much, Dr. Matu, and thank you very much, Dr. Dorian. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.